The scapula should retract. There's a whole bunch of things that should occur on a squat. And then when you ascend and come out of it, now we're talking supination mechanics. The arches should lift. The knees travel laterally, and they begin internally rotating. The femurs externally rotating. The pelvis posteriorly tilting. There's a whole bunch of things that are occurring. But now you start adding load onto that frame. Well, we have to change the mechanics around. Nonetheless, at the bottom of your squat movement, you're still going to have to drive the knees medially to turn on the glutes and the VMO and everything else. So no matter how much weight you're lifting and you see those feet turned out and those knees traveling outward, as soon as they change direction and begin the ascent, that's where we're going to see it occur. You can't get away from it. You've got to. And if you do get away from it, then you're losing a lot of your potential in, in being a power lifter. That was Rocky Snyder, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and K-Box, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous. So check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Thanks for tuning in today. It's great to have you guys here. Functional human movement is definitely a buzzword. I think it's something that we, it's easy to say. Um, a lot of times we have that kind of straw man negative connotation, like just the balance boardy type stuff. But in reality, I know we've been the the coaching industry and the strength and conditioning industry has been evolving towards uh, much more of a like single leg lifts and crawling and more gait related activities becoming a, a higher proportion of our training package. I know it's been like that transition has um, ap- appeared in my own coaching and training over the last really three four years, and it's been awesome. It's really changed. Uh, injury rates. It's it's changed the way that I, I observe and perceive and assess training. And it's been really exciting learning from a lot of, I guess you could just say, movement masterminds and being able to observe athletic movement in a new way. Uh, I think the epitome of the, 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 one of the, the movement-related topics that we all, uh, not all of us perhaps, but a lot of us have been talking and thinking about lately is the, the knees in in jumping and squatting. Why do we see the knees tick in in squatting? Why do the knees come in in elite jumpers and even like basketball players shooting and why is this present in elite elastic athletes? And it's also a natural part of human movement. So when is this phenomenon good? What At what point is it too far? And might it be injurious for an athlete? And the answers to these questions is really found by uh, really getting into gait and how we we move and how we operate. And so uh, that, that question or those questions has brought me to uh, being able to meet uh, and read the books of, or at least his latest book, uh, return to center, but Rocky Snyder. Rocky is an absolute movement expert. He's the owner of Rocky's Fitness in Santa Cruz, California. He's an experienced personal trainer. He's written uh, four books, and the, the most recent of which being Return to Center. But Rocky has an immense, and if you've read his book, 
last book, you, you'll see this, but an absolutely immense amount of knowledge and has done an absolutely immense amount of continuing education in the field of human performance. And one of the things that I've absolutely loved in reading Rocky's books or his book and then in the couple times I've uh, been able to train with him and, and spend time with him is the way he ties these different schools of thought together and particularly the way that he's tied the work of Gary Ward and Gary Ward's flow motion model in looking at the body and each joint in its triplanar action and looking at how we do everything in relation to the gait cycle and then tying that into just general exercises in the, the training community and then also tying that into neurology and assessing what you're doing uh, using neurological techniques to assess, did the body like it? Did it respond well to this? It's a system that, I, I mean, it just totally opened up uh, my own mind and my layers of awareness and how I uh, look at every exercise done in the weight room. And so for the podcast today, Rocky is going to get into his journey of movement and learning uh, and what, what has really evolved his thinking in looking at the human body. He's going to get into the core of functional training, um, not just single lateral versus bilateral movements, and we'll certainly cover that, but even when doing those single leg movements, like let's say lunges and step-ups, what is he looking for? How is he assessing this in light of how we are meant to move in light of joint rotations, foot pressures, how the hips and the foot, and even up through the ribs, how is that all working in a way that is the way that if you watch children move, how are, are we moving the way that we are designed to, or have we had it uh, either coached out of us through movement paradigms that are a little manufactured and too much bilateral work, or that we have we become restricted through injury? How we're, so we're going to get into that, and especially in respect to squatting. And as you heard in the teaser a little bit, how do we train squatting under load? We're going to get into some nuts and bolts of how to uh, assess lunges uh, really under the microscope and how to what and what things are natural in a lunge what comes naturally and what gets coached out and what do, what are we going to need for optimal elastic power in listening to this episode you're going to take away a lot you're going to have a new appreciation for human movement as i know i did and you're also going to have some really cool nuts and bolts things to uh, really put in your training and assessment package. If you're, I'm assuming you're probably listening to this on a podcast, on a mobile device, but there's one exercise in the show notes that really is also on the Just Fly Sports website that is definitely an epitome of some of these contralateral and oppositional uh, topics that Rocky talks about. So definitely be sure to at least check that out so you get an idea of, hey, this is some of this movement opposition that's, that's going on here. And, and again, this a lot of this stuff is ultimately in person is always the best. Sometimes it is hard a little bit to talk about these on air and you can't see what's going on at the same time. But no doubt, even as I listen to this the second time and going through it, there's so much to take away. There's so much to appreciate of how our human bodies are designed and how they work. And man, I just love this stuff. So uh, let's get on to it. Episode 209 with Rocky Snyder. Rocky, so... Man, I, I, it's funny. I should have noticed this in our first session together, but you, you have such a good radio voice. Like, I feel like you should be, you know, leading the interview here right now. You have that background. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. My mom always said, you have the face for radio. And so I, I just went along with it. No, I've been having a fun time on the radio here in Santa Cruz, uh, a couple of stations. And with my love for surfing, some people came up to me a while back and said, Hey, can you do the surf report? And I thought, yeah, why not? And I've been doing it ever since. I love it. Yeah, as I was setting up my audio equipment, I'm, I'm like sitting here, like ready to run you through what we should do, and I'm like, you know, you'd be the one to tell me what to do. <laughs> and I should have noticed that. Uh, I mean, I could tell just first time in meeting you and everything. Like, yeah, this is this is gonna be a great show. I'm I'm excited, man. I know we're here to talk about uh, training and the human body, and so, man, I, I you know I I got your book and I I had no idea really initially what to expect, and as I was just reading it, I was just blown away by your your background in human movement and and your journey. And so, you know, I don't necessarily like to to take too long on these, but what's your like? What led you to the point? What are some key pillars that led you to the point where you are now with human movement and training? So, my superhero origin story is what you're really looking for. Then, <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I I grew up lifting weights. Was starting at 16. A buddy took me to the gym and just showed me the basic routines, and it turned into some bodybuilding through the early 90s. And somewhere along the way, I started burning out a little bit with my routines, and and my body started kind of breaking down a little bit from the routines as well. And I just happened to go to 
to a conference, an annual conference, I, I believe it was 1994, 95 uh, in New Orleans at the NSCA annual conference. And there was a speaker there by the name of Jeff Gluckman. And he presented on muscle balance and function development. And at one point in time, he worked for the Egoscu Clinic in San Diego, but he had branched out by then on his own. And the information he was telling the audience was just so riveting that here we were personal trainers, lifting weights and and strength coaches, trying to get people to produce great degrees of force and athletic a prowess, I guess you'd say, by lifting heavy stuff and putting it down, but not really considering the overall effects on the body. And what he was basically sharing with us was that depending upon your moves, you could very well be pulling people out of alignment, which is going to diminish not only their structural integrity, but their ability to move in, in well with efficiency and in the least amount of compensation. And that just blew me away. So he became my mentor for about four or five years up until the late 90s. And then that propelled me into understanding more, not only about posture, but about movement, and then thinking about gait, which brought me to the Gray Institute and the amazing stuff they do with three-dimensional movement. And then that propelled me on to learning from Gary Ward and Chris Shritharan since 2014. I've been studying the flow motion model with them, with anatomy and motion. And that was really the missing link for me to put the pieces of the puzzle back together. That, and I've been playing around with Z Health and Dr. Eric Cobb for the last few years in motor neurology, but the biomechanics of it all, that's where it came from, is my own body breaking down from the conventional approach we were taking to strength conditioning and realizing, like in the movie The Matrix, that something's not right here and I can't put my finger on it. And then suddenly I started to not only put my finger on it, but I was, I was actually grabbing with both hands and shaking it for all its worth to figure out how can I reinvent the wheel so that we're not breaking down bodies? How can we design programs that are going to realign posture rather than take it away? Yeah, and at some point, just with that pure sagittal plane, bilateral, uh, push the squat, push the you know deadlift, push the bench press mentality, eventually, and we're not working the body in opposition or spirals or anything, eventually something's going to break down and, and so many people... I think experienced that same thing at some point. We experienced that breakdown. Uh, what you mentioned, Gary Ward. Uh, could you explain specific? Because I know Gary's been on uh, this show twice. Could you explain specifically some of the really key things uh, and impacts that his model has had on you, and how that's changed your ideas and landed you where you are now? Certainly. Well, he wrote that book, What the Foot, and therefore he's. I won't say pigeonholed, but he has been thought of as the foot guy when in truth that's f- the furthest thing from what he is. More or less, he is the the whole body guy. He has done something no one else that I know has ever done, and that is truly mapped out what every joint in the body has to go through in three-dimensional space through the entire gait cycle. And that's what he teaches. And by understanding how bones and joints move, You don't really have to worry about what the muscles are doing. And here we are in our industry of strength coaches and personal training, movement specialists, and we've been focusing so much attention on individual muscles or groups of muscles, telling them they're facilitated or inhibited or whatever, when no one's really actually looking at how are the joints moving through space? Because once we know that, then that's our map, that's our guide, and that's what Gary has taught us is this map called the flow motion model. And when I watch somebody move, whether it's in a a gym or just on the sidewalk, I get a better understanding of of how they're doing it, but more importantly, what they're not accomplishing and how can we re-educate or remind or give the body a, a new experience, one that's more efficient so that suddenly those muscles that were inhibited or or overused, over-facilitated, begin to balance out. They they begin to turn on when they should. They begin to, to I, would say, I won't say turn off, but they will they will soften when they need to. It's just getting the body to move how the joints are expected to move. Amazing things can happen. And that's what Gary, through uh, my friendship and my t- tutelage under him for the last six years, has been all about. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of you know, looking at it. I think a bias, a common bias in, in training is uh, a muscle and force-based paradigm, which if you move well and an athlete moves well, you can use that paradigm and they're going to see gains and it's going to be no problem. It's just, I think for me, a question becomes 
well, is there something you could do more optimally? Or is there something that could get you hurt here soon? And just there, it's kind of like there's those two sides of the equation. And I just think that the, the muscle, looking at muscles and looking at activation and looking at force is so easy to do. Yes. And it, it could certainly get people results, but to get the full circle and to give people the best that you can give them, it's that looking at how the biomechanics and the joints that Gary talks about creates what's happening on the muscular level more so than I just like, like for the example of, Oh, your glute isn't working or your meat, glute meat isn't fine here. Do some clamshells. Like it's right. just the most simple reductionist way of looking at it when the human body is so much more complex than that. Exactly. And you know, with those program designs that we're doing with just massive force production for the sake of improved athletic performance, in my mind, that's a very short term approach. And you're looking for somebody to peak in a certain age range Typically, if we're talking about professional athletes, they're going to be somewhere between 19 to 35 years old. And, and your goal is just to keep them at a peak performance for that short window of, of time. But what if there was a way of developing a program that not only achieved that, but did it so that there was fewer wear and tear, fewer compensatory patterns, fewer non-contact injuries that were recurring, and that improved the longevity of an athlete's career? I mean, that's really what we're talking about. So instead of just grabbing weights and being concerned with whatever their RM or percentage of their one RM really is, what if we looked at the quality of how that individual moves? Because yes, he's a world-class athlete or, or she is an Olympian, but at the same time, they are some of the best people at hiding their own faults and their own weaknesses and compensations. They have trained themselves to get around their faults in such a way that they are at their top of their game. But imagine if they didn't have those faults, how further would they be? That's the question for me. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I think a lot, one of the, or on a lot of the podcasts I've done recently, um, we've been talking a lot about, and even some articles that have been on the site is kind of the idea of where do you go from here? Like, let's say I'm doing a, I'm 16 and I'm starting a weightlifting program and I, maybe my career will take me to my mid twenties. Like, how am I going to keep building on just doing the same weightlifting? And I, I feel like being having awareness of what we're going to talk about with the functional training and opposition. And I've done a podcast before where the talk was about starting with a single leg in the periodization model, more functional. So starting functional and moving into intensifying through bilateral. And I feel like through becoming more well acquainted with this stuff, we can really optimize the, the, the functional. It's like we can build the right engine and, and then intensify that engine exactly. rather than the other way around waiting for the engine to break down and then, you know, go get to rehab or <laughs> fix it down the road. Yeah, well, that's the cool thing about neurology, too, that I'm learning is that if we bring the body back into a more centrated place, the brain is going to allow a greater deal of force production. And the further away we get from center, the further malaligned or distorted our posture becomes, the less likely the brain's going to actually be able to exert the proper amount of force. So there's this governing wire. What would it be like if the programs that we were designing were actually bringing people back into a more central, balanced place, what would their force production be like? Now, the, the trouble here is that the conventional approach to program design is really founded upon isolated or, or open chain movements that you'd often find in bodybuilding. Now, granted, that's changed a lot in the last 10, maybe 15 years, but leading up to that, we're, we're still seeing programs that have uh, barbell curls or maybe even a leg extension or a leg press in it that aren't necessarily gearing the body toward being more balanced. It's actually going to excite the more dominant side while the other side gets stronger, but not at the same rate. So all these bilateral movements, they do have their place, but I don't think they have such a huge place that we find them now. I mean, 80% of, of a person's program on average is going to not only be sagittally biased, but it's going to be a lot of bilateral movement. And any athlete that's out there running on a court or uh, on a field or soccer pitch, there's very little they do bilaterally. So th there's this disconnect with logic that I, I fear just keeps coming up that we, we need to break away from that. We need to be brave enough to actually put the dumbbells down and to question what we're doing before we just mindlessly follow the next lemming off the cliff and expect different results. Yeah, just getting into the biomechanics and, and looking at that from the ground up. I we talked about this my first time here, but the idea when we were doing some frontal plane work, as I'm sure we'll get into, but I was mentioning how I just feel so much more athletic 
uh, me being a track athlete, like playing basketball and moving multilaterally was so important for me to be the best linear, more linear track athlete. Not that track is totally linear, but it, it's just that multilateral functional development and movement fed into that so well. And I think about that same principle if you're in the gym too, if you can create a better functional base, the output, the linear output, the squat output, whatever output you're looking for can be better because you, you've built the base of the pyramid a little bit better. Yeah, that's really well said. And I mean, we spend so much time sagittal plane motion that what happens to the frontal and transverse plane? Now, granted, there is some action in the transverse plane when we do a lot of the hip flexion. You've got internal, external rotation, the femurs, of course, uh, but you don't have much. Yeah, you've got the knees traveling medially or laterally. So you could say that there's some frontal plane action, but that's actually driven by transverse action and, and flexion or tilting of the pelvis but really what happens to the frontal plane especially the frontal plane and i guess second place would be the transverse plane if you're not going to be exploring how the tissues expand or shorten how the joints move through those planes of motion then it's actually going to limit your ability to produce force linear like you say in the sagittal frame so yeah, we, we need to focus more time. I, I look at the frontal plane. It was described to me long ago as the fish muscles. Prehistoric time, before we had limbs, we traveled through the ocean through our frontal plane of, of slithering like an eel or swimming like a fish. And then suddenly we have limbs and we start moving in a different way. Well, we didn't lose those muscles. They've just taken on a slightly different role. The frontal plane allows us to shift over to one leg than the other. And most people are going to be more dominant or more loaded over one side compared to the other. So what is that going to tell you about the quality of their frontal plane action? We need to explore that. And, and chances are they're not going to be very good at it. So don't expect to be loading a whole bunch of weight onto it like you might with your your traditional lifts. And I think that's where we get into trouble with is because we've been so ingrained into thinking that we must load and we must achieve this temporary muscle fatigue through this excessive load and, and resistance that, that suddenly what if the body was too much or just the right amount of load and you didn't actually need it first to start loading it with, ex, with external resistance? What if, what if that were the case? I, I don't know how many people actually think about that, but they really start they, they should start to do that. In regards to difficulty of movement, I think the easiest thing in the world is to make something harder by throwing more weight on. It's, it's just like, <laughs> exactly. okay, you need to work harder, or, you, know, you need to get more of a burn or more output or more motor unit activation, whatever the term is. And again, that, but that motor unit activation is going to be selective to the pattern, you know, the limitation of the pattern too, exactly. which is important. Uh, so how do you achieve difficulty in a movement? So if someone's like, I want some intensity and it's, you're, you're trying to help them move better, can you explain your process in that? I look for what's missing in their movement because there's something most likely in a typical pattern. Let's just take, can we take your, we, we did a little bit of movement before the show here. And, and one of the things that we did was a, a lateral lunge. And I wanted you to get over into your stepping over with your right leg laterally while reaching across with a dumbbell in your left hand. It wasn't excessive a weight, but I needed to load the, the posterior chain in, in the back of your shoulder around the scapula. And I thought the best way to do that is, well, let's just go laterally and have you reach across, see if we can load that tissue. Well, while you were doing that movement, well, I noticed a few things. One, that your left elbow was in a flex position as the dumbbell was descending to the ground. So that means you weren't actually extending and reaching with that arm. So therefore, what was really holding you there was not so much you were kind of protecting or, or not allowing the posterior chain to really kick in. So just by asking you to extend your elbow, that increased the demand on where I wanted it to be. So by watching what your joints were doing and knowing what they should do and encouraging them to do what they weren't, and what they should be, then things started to light up. Also, watch how you, you landed on your leg and drove back to a standing posture with both feet side by side. There wasn't a drive off your leg so much as it was your torso was starting to lift too soon. So 
I just encourage you to drive off that leg, and then that cleared up how you were how are you moving back into the beginning place, and therefore you weren't compensating with spinal extension, but you were actually driving off the hip extensors. So by knowing how the joints move in any given exercise is going to tell your coach exactly what you're missing. And by putting those missing ingredients, whether it's extending the, the, the elbow or rotating the rib cage or, or tilting the pelvis, whatever needs to happen is going to start to light up muscles in a way that they hadn't in a while. And that's going to bring up the intensity. And provided you can do that on a regular basis and have the proper joint mechanics, okay, now you graduate on to loading the body, it provided that you can still maintain those mechanics. Yeah, I, I've kind of come up, I don't know if I came up with this term, but I've thought it, this, this popped into my, my mind over the last couple of years, and I call it intensifying wrong. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think it's when you, we, you have a, a bad movement pattern and you're still in the paradigm of let's just, you know, we're, we're, we're progressing by adding more weight. Or even I even see it sometimes with, my favorite is is people will do various running mechanics that aren't really respecting the nature of the body and how it actually moves, and they'll tie bands onto the person doing those wrong running mechanics. And it's just like, I'm like, man, like this is this person's really gonna need some ironing out later. And I, that was really when I was doing that lateral lunge, and even when I had my arm flexed, I if I would have just I only had a ten pound dumbbell, but I imagine, and when I was having my arm flexed, as you were saying, I was actually protecting or guarding against getting into the space in the back of my shoulder of my posterior capsule. And if I would have just been in the paradigm, oh, we'll just, you know, I did 10 pounds last week, so I'll do 15 pounds this week and 20. Now all I'm doing is I'm just intensifying the guarding in a way. I'm exactly. just intensifying the, my lack of ability to relax that arm so I can actually get into that space in the back of my shoulder. And that exercise helped my my range of motion increased after that. My shoulder felt better. I could do that overhead um, arm uh, extension test without any pinching and if I wouldn't have, if I would have kept guarding, I may not have ever gotten there. That's, and, and that is the crux of the matter that, that we're really trying to get to the heart of here is that the conventional way in which we're doing program is more concerned about loading the body and not necessarily watching how the proper mechanics are being exhibited or are they being exhibited? Because just if I've got a, a structure, a building, where the foundation and the, the, the studs and all that are not in their proper position, that structure is going to be compromised. And now I'm just going to bring people into that apartment building, let's say, and then they bring in all of their, their living furniture and everything else. Now you've got so much weight loaded onto a structure that's not sound. What's the outcome going to be? And unfortunately, I mean, I love, I love strength conditioning. I love being a strength coach, personal trainer. I love everything I do and I love the industry. And I guess that's why I'm, I'm here is, is to say, if, if there's something that you love, you're not just going to hug it every day and say, this is the best. You got to find what is what are the weak spots and can we make this better and i think that when it comes to program design we have quite a few weak spots and the biggest thing is is the whole loading concept that okay you can handle that weight then let's bump it up and see if it can handle more but no one i'll say no one few people really watch how the movement is being done and we'll say, okay, well, let's stay here. Let's see if you can get that pressure on the fifth met head when you're doing your lunge. Or let's get that rib cage to rotate instead of protracting the shoulder and sending the arm flying. You know, these are the things that you need to know as a strength coach. If you're telling people how to move your body, I mean, the bottom line is you should know how the body moves. And the beautiful thing with the flow motion model is, is, is I, and to come back to Gary's work, is that is exactly what I needed to learn. And so it has stepped up the game in terms of the training of athletes and, and general population here like you would not believe. In fact, now most orthopedics are just, just telling their patients to come here and for whether it's pre-surgical conditioning or after in conjunction with physical therapy or after it's done. But we, we get a lot of people coming in here because of the, the effects and you know, the, uh, the outcome of, of this type of program. Yeah, so I'd like to dive into, you know, before we get too far down, um, I guess just ph philosophy, I want to get into some nuts and bolts of, you know, because we talk about good technique. And yeah. I think what a lot of people's um, perception of good technique might, I don't think it fits with what I think once we get into Gary's stuff and we get into joint opposition and spirals, 
-hmm. there can be a lot of differences there. And so uh, what would you say, so let's just take a lunge. I know our initial work was doing a lunge series. Sure. So in doing a lunge or different, uh, different directional lunges, what are some things that you're really looking for that someone should be able to do? And how does that uh, play a role in your assessment process? All right. If we're just talking a, a front lunge, stepping forward, and in that action, we want to see the body's ability to decelerate all that mass and momentum against the floor when they land on the ground. And that landing on planet Earth is one of two movements that we do as humans. The other movement is pushing off planet Earth. So we, that landing on planet Earth, when the, floor, when the foot hits the floor, we're going to see pronation mechanics. And not just the foot. We can talk foot all day, but um, the knee, when it pronates, should be flexing and externally rotating. And that doesn't mean that the knee is driving laterally. The knee is actually driving medially because of the rotation occurring at the hip as well as down in the talus. But the joint, the knee joint itself, is that the femur is rotating toward the midline faster than the tibia. So therefore, we're going to see external rotation at the knee joint with flexion. That's a pronating knee. Am I seeing that when somebody's lunging? Or are they keeping it over their second toe because they've been told that they shouldn't let it drive inward? Or is it rolling outward? That's going to give me a great understanding. I'm also looking at the foot. We have a shoe optional facility here. I tried clothing optional, but my wife shut that down a long time ago. But the, the, the shoe optional, I can watch the person's foot. And, but for most people, they don't. So I'll just I'll, I'll skip up to the hip. Is the hip flexing? Is the pelvis anteriorly tilting? Is the, is the knee traveling medially? Is the pelvis rotating toward the stepping leg or away? If it should be rotating away because that back leg should be extending because a lunge is just an exaggeration of a walk, a gait pattern. Really, that's what the lunge should be. We can have the back knee bend, and then all you're doing is putting your focus on the front leg, but you're negating gait mechanics and how you're really moving the body. So then you've got to wonder, well, why am I doing this lunge? If the lunge is to improve human movement, gait being the most common form of that, then I would think that the front lunge should mimic that as much as possible. So I'm not only looking at the forward leg, but I want to be interested in what the back leg is doing. Are you properly pushing off that back leg and creating supination mechanics? So is the ankle plantar flexing? Is the knee truly extending, which we'll find almost never happens for somebody doing a lunge? And maybe that's because the tissue of the hip flexors have been shortened, or maybe they've just not been coached that way. There's a whole bunch of reasons by it. But those are the things I'm looking for. Do we have external rotation? Is the pelvis rotating toward the back leg and away from the front leg? And then what's the torso doing? If the pelvis is rotating, let's say you're stepping out with your right leg, pelvis is rotating left. The rib cage should be facing forward while you're doing a lunge. So therefore, if the pelvis is rotating to the left, the rib cage, in essence, would have to rotate right to stay facing center. And so I'm looking for that oppositional motion also. And by landing on that forward leg, that right leg, that pelvis should be higher than the, the left side. So we should see this lateral tilt to the left. That means that the rib cage has to stay over the hips and on top of that, la- that lunging foot by laterally tilting right. More opposition now in the frontal plane. And so we've got opposition everywhere. The pelvis is tilting anteriorly. The rib cage has to tilt posteriorly to stay over the hips. So I'm looking at all those things. And, and honestly, I'm just checking them off as the person is doing the lunge. And what are the biggest things missing? Can I clean those up? And if not, why? Then I have to further search up and down the chain to see what isn't occurring. And then can I just maybe take them out of that exercise, that movement, and get them into something where I'm really getting to the nuts and bolts of it, and then bring them back into that global pattern and see if it's cleaned up. And then once it's cleaned up, oh, then throw a barbell on their shoulder. Now, I will say this. There's some people that train uh, with that are weight training that actually may clean their movements up by loading them. So I'm not going to say don't load them, but there may be a, there better be a reason why. Right? If it's not cleaning up without the weight, well, okay, throw the barbell on and let's see if that happens. And sometimes it will. I'm like, okay, so you're going to be doing a barbell lunge and you're going to be doing it in this fashion or, or whatever to get to the, the, the true goal of proper joint mechanics and proper function. 
I like, Rocky, how you started with, you talk about the lunge, and the first thing you mentioned was just the foot pronating. I think so often, and this is why I just, I had mentioned there's this disconnect, I think, between what is uh, quote-unquote perfect form from a manufactured sense, and then, well, well, let's just start with how the body moves, and the gait cycle, and, and, and I really like that you said you start with pronation. I think it's so often that we, it's just we want to see joints lined up, we don't want to see deviation of the knee left to right, we want to see everything pretty much, but that isn't the paradigm of how the body works. It works in spirals and almost zigzags or opposition. Um, exactly. Could you, uh, so I actually, I will say too, I, I feel like we are too like, like space in front of us oriented. Like you, I think we often would ignore the back leg and you, you see athletes oftentimes will just, if they're doing like a rear foot elevated split squat and they're not being coached too much, a lot of times they'll just, they're just paying attention to what's in front of them. They're not yes. really, there's not, they're ignoring everything behind. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that with the back leg too. I, I triple jump was one of the events that I did in track and I, um, uh, my track mentor, Darian Barr was the first person to ever give me the idea of looking at the, like when I was in this bound position with my front knee way out in front and my, my back leg and back to think about actually like the stretch load of the back leg and how it would powerfully kick through to balance the system. I'd I'd never heard that before, but I was like, Whoa, cues on the backside of the body. This is great. This is totally different. We're just so used to things that are only in the front and then uh, in the weightlifting sense too, I think we're, we're obsessed, obsessed with just supination cues in the front. You know, we don't, it's like we try to avoid pronation. And I don't know if that's more of a brace oriented paradigm or a, you know, like resist. It's like you have to, if you're not letting yourself pronate on these, these movements, you're kind of creating, you're not experiencing the fullness of your movement. You're just kind of locking yourself out to part of it. it, it well said. I, I think that by not experiencing pronation, you're not experiencing proper loading of the tissues of your body. I mean, that is when we are the most loaded is in the pronation mechanics. Like I said, the, the knee itself can pronate, the hip can pronate, the spine can pronate. So we got to stop thinking about just the foot in regards to pronation mechanics because it's all connected. The knee has to do something in order for the foot to pronate. The hip has to do something, the spine, everything. So we can go completely up the chain to the skull and out the fingers for that matter. And there are pronation mechanics for every single joint, just like there are supination mechanics. There's the landing on the planet and there's the push off. These are the essential ingredients that we need to reinforce in everyone that walks through the door. If we're not, and we're just simply going for aesthetics and force production without being concerned about that, then we're just throwing stuff at the wall blindly and, and hoping for the best, which up until this point has been successful mm-hmm. for, I would say, the majority of people, 50, 60%. But what about the other percentage where it, it requires a lot of time off of sports, injured reserve, or just lost man hours, or just pain in general? I mean, that's that's the recipient of that type of, of program design. So changing it around, definitely looking at pronation. And with pronation, like you say, there is opposition. The front of the foot needs to do something opposite to the rear foot. The, in fact, you look at every bone. When, when you see a joint move, one bone is moving clockwise, the other one's moving counterclockwise, right? It's just that simple. For your knee to flex, one bone's got to go back while the other one's lifting upward or, or one's pulling downward while the other one's moving up. We just see it in everything. And as soon as you start to recognize that, it's like somebody has pulled the blinders off you and you're going, holy cow, why didn't I see this before? I've been so concerned with the transverse abdominus or the multifidi or that darn glued medius that keeps needing to fire up that is always inhibited no matter how many rubber bands I take to it, you know? Well, maybe it's because it's inhibiting itself because somewhere else is over-facilitated or there's an area that's moving too much, so we have to slow that down and speed somewhere else up. We start thinking in that manner of maybe blocking a joint's motion to encourage other movement, and then suddenly the body really lights up and performance just goes through the roof. Yeah, I I love that joint-centric and biomechanical model. like we were just doing that, um, that modified bowler squat with the reach where I was, uh, I had the slider on the one foot and I was getting into like a lunge with that reach back. And as soon as I went to my right knee, I, I go down and I have pain there. And I think the muscle centric model was like, Oh, just do some VMO activations and some, you know, some terminal knee extensions and you'll be good. But it's like, we don't even need to go there. Cause no. you, you found out my, uh, calcaneus wasn't 
anteriorly tilting to work with my knee going forward. It's like if your knee's trying to go forward on a stuck calcaneus, that's not good. And as soon as you put that wedge on the back of my heel to let my um, heel travel forward, oh, no knee pain. Voila, magic. It's Isn't just it amazing? It's a two-second fix. <laughs> Honestly, for two million years, those joints have had this wedding, this marriage together, that when the calcaneus rolls forward into pronation, the knee should flex. And if there's a divorce in this relationship, then uh, there's going to be some suffering. I mean, just to put it in that analogy, I just, we've got to learn the relationships of how these joints move together. And once we do, then you start to see, oh, well, you're, you're not playing by the rules. We've, we've got to kind of get you into the party here and, and play along. So when it came to your right knee, yeah, yeah, you're, you're quad or whatever tissue around the knee was starting to talk to you well that's because the the heel just wasn't doing its fair share so you you just glide it encourage it to do what it needs to do and then suddenly the knee goes oh yeah that's great yeah just helping yeah help the joints talk to each other exactly yeah the body being so connected i so you said something just a little bit ago uh, that got me thinking because this is another just real common thing is knee over the second toe and it almost looks like it's so manufactured when you see someone squat with flat feet and they're like but then they're pushing their knees over there's just something that looks so weird about that and if you watch people just walk normally or watch children squat right like and so what um when that's happening or, or i guess i should say what are you looking for in so if someone's doing a lunge or a single leg rfe squat or even a bilateral squat maybe let's go through those different okay. ones uh, what are some like what, if, if and let's say someone's not pronating correctly? Maybe let's just start with the lunch because I don't want to. I, I I have a tendency sometimes I ask five questions in one question. That <laughs> I've been called out from this or for this by guests before. So let's just say a single leg squat lunge pattern, and someone's you notice that someone's not pronating their foot well, and that's maybe manifesting up the chain with a knee that's not medially coming in. And like you said, that that femur isn't actually rotating. What are where do you start with that? Well, let's see if they can bring it in on their own. Can I just coach them to say, you know, when you do this on on your way down, I want you to try and bring that knee just in the direction of the big toe. And they try it. It doesn't happen. Okay. So maybe we might need to encourage it. Just just looking at that without really looking at anything else because we've got 360 joints in the body and somewhere it, it's not working. But for right now, we'll just focus on the knee. I can encourage them into it and pull them over the big toe. Now, I don't necessarily... Uh, encourage that too often, like with rubber bands or something, I'm just going to hold a rubber band and you're going to have it so that's pulling off to your side, encouraging that, that knee to go over the big toe. Cause what most likely is going to happen there, uh, they're going to be protecting and they're not going to want to go there. So the outcome is going to be that they're going to be driving and fighting against that and pulling their knee even further laterally. So what if we did it the other way? What if we drew them into the direction they're already preferring going. So if they want to go outward with that knee, I'll take the band and I'll pull on that knee outward. And now what do they have to do? Oh, well, now the knee has to fight that tendency of being pulled outward and it has to engage and now it's traveling more medially. So we might consider that reactive neuromuscular training, you know, Gray Cook and the functional movement screens approach there. It could be considered just functional approach in my book where you're uh, you're going to take a, a an area of the body and drive it where it's already tending to go. So the brain recognizes that that's actually not where it wants to go and it has to correct it by going the opposite direction. Now what I could do and what I do commonly with, with clients is I just put them in a split stance and I don't want them stepping and loading. I just want them in a split stance and can we get the mechanics down before we start adding mass and momentum and acceleration? Just put them in this split stance and can you glide over the foot? And then I might block with my hand on the outside portion of their lower leg or outside of the knee and just kind of glide it where I want it to go. And then what's happening down at the foot? Am I seeing what I need to do? Are the arches, all three of them starting to soften and drop and the tissue loading into it? Or do I need to encourage difference of movement down there? And then from there, maybe I'll start traveling up the body from the knee. As long as I'm getting that, what do I see happening at the hip? Am I seeing what I need to on the front hip as well as on the back and what's going on with the spine, the rib cage, and so on and just start going and connecting the links to the chain. And somewhere on that chain, I'm most likely going to find something that isn't playing along. So, so you're essentially, it's 
you're taking the gait cycle and you're, you're putting the gait cycle into movement. So lunge, what's happening as per the gait cycle in this lunge? Uh, what, and I really, I, I think we did a little bit of that too, that you were mentioning with the band, pulling me uh, into almost the place that, I think into the place I was already going versus yes. the other way around, which is like the, the pull out, uh, pulling out of that range. Exactly. You were rolling outward with that stiff foot that, that inverts, that, that kind of, I won't say it supinates because mm-hmm. it doesn't. It would need some opposition. You've just got a stiff foot that the whole foot rolls outward. And people will say, oh, that's this high arch supinated foot. When uh, We may want to argue that because a supinated foot would require the forefoot doing one thing with the rear foot doing something else. But both forefoot and rear foot were rolling outward, mm-hmm. putting the pressure on the outside of your foot. So I said, okay, if you want to play that game, let's, let's really do that and wrap the band around the inside of your knee and pull that knee outward. And instantly you changed your, your knee started driving where we wanted it to. You started feeling like the adductors and the glutes and the VMO turning on. And we started to get that chain reaction firing. So that's, that's definitely what we did in your case, but that's, that's where we really want to go is, is do we have oppositional movement in the body, whether it's the foot, the hip, the rib cage, the skull, wherever. Yeah. I'd like to, as we have time, I'd love to dig just a little bit more into that opposition. Cause I'm just, that's just been my big like aha moment of really like the last few months, but then even mm-hmm. since our time together and just, just thinking about it more and it's like, wow, this is so woven into everything we do. Um, just quickly though, cause I, you had mentioned this, and I, I just think Gary has mentioned this, Ward has mentioned this on my show before, but this idea of in a, in a squat or and maybe a squat, we could talk about if that's different, but like a lunge and a single leg movement, that knee tracking like over the big toe, like slightly medially. To you, is that ever become a bad, like we talk about good valgus and bad valgus sometimes, or good knees in and bad knees in, like, and the, the knees in an ACL and injury, like when to you does that, is it good or does that become a problem if you're watching someone's knee travel inwards in movement? Oh, that could definitely be a problem. I, you know, I homeschool my son and we learned about popcorn. I'll try and make this real quick. But you know what pop makes popcorn pop is the water inside the kernel. And uh, heat is applied to the kernel and the pressure of the water builds up and creates this plasma substance that the pressure builds up so much that the kernel ex- explodes and turns into this soft, crunchy thing we enjoy at the movies. But what happens if you don't have enough water is trapped in the kernel? Well, it'll never explode. And that's the kernel found at the bottom of your bag in the theater. And then if it has too much water, the pressure builds up too quickly. And then it's that little hard nugget that you get caught in between your teeth when you're trying to eat it. So there is this Goldilocks spot. There's just enough water. There's a range that you want to maintain. And, and the same goes through with the knee as well, is that we want that knee to travel at just the right angle and not too much medially, not too much laterally, but just the right amount so that everything turns on. Because if that knee travels too far medially, then we're going to have some problems, right? We're going to have maybe the the lack of deceleration with the VMO, the glute hamstring complex. We're not going to have the proper firing pattern that we want. So yeah, just because we want that knee to travel immediately doesn't mean we want it to go over to the Red Sea. You know, we want it to stay within a certain range. And we, we definitely don't want it hanging out too far to the opposite side. So you really have to know there's this sweet spot with everybody. And when it comes to the squat, yeah, let's talk about the squat for a second because the squat is is different when we're talking about powerlifting. And that's where the squat has come from. You know, whether it's the NSCAs back in 78, uh, University of Oklahoma, and starting to throw weights on football players there. We, we just took the odd lifts, or now they're called power lifts, but the, the squat, the bench press, and the deadlift. And we started to apply that to everything. It became like the panacea for strength. Everybody should squat. Yes, everybody should squat, but how about if everybody squatted properly without weight compared to powerlifting squatting, they're two separate entities themselves. So when you're descending into your chair with just your own body weight, both feet should be pronating. That causes internal rotation of the talus. That drives the knees medially, knock need if you will. That creates internal rotation of the femur and anterior tilt of the pelvis. The spine should extend with the rib cage tilting posteriorly or, or leaning back. The head has to anteriorly tilt so that it doesn't get thrown back with the rib cage but stays level with the horizon. 
The scapula should retract. There's a whole bunch of things that should occur on a squat. And then when you ascend and come out of it, now we're talking supination mechanics. The arches should lift. The knees travel laterally, and they begin internally rotating. The femurs externally rotating. The pelvis posteriorly tilting. There's a whole bunch of things that are occurring. But now you start adding load onto that frame. Well, we have to change the mechanics around. Nonetheless, at the bottom of your squat movement, you're still going to have to drive the knees medially to turn on the glutes and the VMO and everything else. So no matter how much weight you're lifting and you see those feet turned out and those knees traveling outward, as soon as they change direction and begin the ascent, that's where we're going to see it occur. You can't get away from it. You've got to. And if you do get away from it, then you're losing a lot of your potential in, in being a power lifter. Yeah, you see it in Olympic lifts all the time. And in the strength and conditioning community, people are starting to post these pictures of especially Olympic lifters because I think they're a little more, they're, they're, they work faster than powerlifters. Like a powerlifter, you can go slower, you got the suit on, you can kind of keep things, I think, in a certain position perhaps more so. But that those Olympic lifters either squatting or coming up out of the hole, you always see that kind of knee tick in. And uh, Pat Davidson wrote a good article about that and how it fit with the, the gait cycle. And like mm-hmm. you said, we... Like, yeah, if you don't do it, you're kind of disengaging your, yeah, your VMOs and your uh, glutes because you're not allowing the joints to create that uh, motion for you. Exactly. And you got to, as a coach, you got to wonder, okay, why am I giving this person these lifts? Are they an Olympic weightlifter? then I think they do need to do clean and jerks and snatches and derivative lifts. Are they a power lifter? Then they better be bench pressing squat and doing the deadlift. Are they the general population? Well, then I might wonder if I really want to give those particular lifts as the core foundation of their program, I might want to try and throw that in occasionally to see, can we coordinate those movements? There's so many other movements that I want them to be responsible for before we get into any kind of competitive lifting process. And that's the other thing is that we've just taken those exercises for granted and just decided, oh, we've got to throw them in and now we're going to time you or we're going to do some AMRAP kind of thing. And what good is that? I mean, it goes right back to our earlier conversation that we're just throwing things on a body that's not prepared to handle it. And we're expecting for some miraculous reset button to occur and some self-correction to occur when that's not going to happen. And we're just feeding more compensation and postural distortions and and long-term pain and agony somewhere down the road. The orthos love it because they stay in business. But uh, it would be nice if we had fewer orthos in the world, I think. The, I, I mentioned the intensifying wrong. I feel like the AMRAP is a quick way to do that for a lot of people. <laughs> oh, it's the best. That's best. <laughs> um, I, I, I like what you said about there's that Goldilocks zone of, of knees coming in. And so I think that's really important because I think oftentimes people just want to stay away from that entirely. Like I see ACL prevention programs where they're just like, well, just stay away from that. Well, it's like, well, how are you ever going to be a good elastic athlete if you stay away from, with that, from those knees coming in entirely? It's going to really, you know, mess you up. Yeah, and, and just think of the nervous system. If you don't guide it into that position, how is it going to learn to get out of that mm-hmm. position if it's never been in it? If you're teaching someone how to walk across a busy intersection, oh, are you going to teach them to wait and to right, wait for the right moment? Or are you just going to say, I never want you to cross the street? And then suddenly, you know, a ball rolls across there and without thinking they run out into traffic without ever knowing how. I think that's the problem with a lot of ACL kind of prevention programs. When it comes to ACL kind of, I would say, re-education or reinforcement programs that we have here, it's really all about can I get that knee to flex and externally rotate? Can it extend and internally rotate? Can it do it under load? I'm not going to do a whole bunch of open chain movements. I want to see can the whole chain reaction occur so that the VMO does decelerate as well as all the other tissue. Is, and it's, I keep coming back to the VMO because that's usually one of the ones that isn't doing its job because it's not being trained to do its job properly because we don't allow the knee to go inward or over the big toe. Keep it over that second toe and you're asking for an ACL tear. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, and I, I totally agree too. I think it's just so interesting when we talk VMO training too, it's just like it could be just, yeah, do a bunch of TKs, do a bunch of sissy squats, but that's not ever letting that knee do its travel as intended in gait. And every time I've done Gary's work uh, with the wet, either the wedges or just opposition, and I always feel that VMO just get lit up and it just feels, and there's no knee pain and it feels so natural. And I just think that that understanding of joints helps us to get 
do do so much more with not having to do as much to try to achieve it in the sagittal plane. And you, yes. you bring up a good point there too. It feels so natural. So the movements should be natural movements. And mm-hmm. if they don't feel natural, that may give you an indication either you're doing it improperly or the movement isn't natural and you may want to, uh, you know, find some other movements that you want to explore. So the, the typical outcome, and you last week being here last week and we were kind of in the playground here playing around with different movements, you were a, a, the epitome of the outcome that I love seeing after putting people through programs or giving them the movements they really need is that you were hopping literally around the studio here in your high jump mechanics just going oh my gosh this is just you know there's this there's this excitement there's this almost revelation there's this this awareness that comes over a person when they're moving properly and it's not the oh my god you killed me oh that was awesome i can barely move i was so sore for days after that's the last thing i want to hear actually I want to see like, oh my gosh, I feel like I had a guy here last night who's had uh, hip replacements, a knee replacement, and uh, he's just a, a couple broken foot history and so on. He walked out of here going, I think I, I want to go swimming. And, you know, and he's marching around the room, lifting up his knee going, I don't hear anything. You know, that's what I love. And whether it's the pro athlete that, that enters here or it's the grandma, it doesn't really matter. If they leave with a little bit of a skip to their step and a little bit of bounce and feeling lighter and like they can accomplish more, then job well done. Yeah. I, I want to go back to that Goldilocks zone in terms of uh, yeah. just practical. From whatever we can communicate in this audio medium, you know, it's not, this isn't a video course here. I, I don't know when we, we talk about this stuff, it's easy to, you know, to have, and obviously you have, you know, tons of uh, images in your book and, and then the QR codes and the exercises and things like that. Uh, but just from an audio perspective only, uh, what, so people trying to find that Goldilocks zone. I know it's very experienced, you know, there's a lot of experience in it and visual and, and knowing what to see, but what should coaches be looking at? Like, let's just say I, I'm working with someone and the goal is, you know, we're, we're trying to get you ready to squat effectively. We're trying to get you uh, ready. We, we're looking at your jump mechanics and we're just working like a single leg, you know, lunge or a step up. What are some things to really look at and keep your eye on to start becoming more comfortable, familiar with what that Goldilocks zone is for that athlete in terms of medial knee travel with it not being too much or, or too little? Mm. In particular, the the knee itself? Is that what we're yeah, talking? Like, yeah, okay. the knee going in, the knees okay. in thing, yeah. So... I would say mid patellar should be over the first met head when loading into that before ascension, right? As you're descending into it, does that knee travel? And the other thing is if you're doing, say, a step up, I'm expecting that knee to travel over or beyond the toe. Not too far, right? Just a little bit. And we're not talking uh, inches or several inches. We're talking maybe a, a little bit. But uh, we go into, yeah, never let your knee go go past the foot. Oh, that's, that's nonsense too, right? So I, I want that knee to travel over the first met head. I want it to travel forward and laterally into that spot. Can I see the foot staying planted as if it's a sucker fish and it's just adhered onto a, a rocky surface? And then as it travels up upward, is it moving gently away toward a more central loaded place? Like, are they actually getting their weight over that leg? That Those are the things I'm looking at. So yes, I can take a, a binoculars and home in or a microscope and home in on exactly what the knee is doing, but I better be able to have a wide angle lens and pan back to see how is the torso loading over that leg because we really want to see you lining up. Are you stacked vertically over that leg? Because that's really really what I'm looking for too. Do you own the ability to bring the torso completely over that hip, right? If you don't, then we're going to work that too. So yeah, that's, those are the, the, the things that I look for in terms of not too much. I don't want that knee traveling inside the big toe. I don't want it staying over the th- second, third, or fourth. I want it going right in between. That's, that's basically the Goldilocks spot. Yeah, I love it. I just love all these ideas and things to observe. Because I think about, you know, if I'm spending 10 years in the weight room with people, what have I really learned that make me a master craftsman? And knowing what to observe like that, it just, it puts so many, it makes me feel like I'm learning so much more and becoming such a, 
better at the art of observing and, and you yeah, know what to look at. I agree. I honestly, uh, just through experience myself, learning how just the joint, studying joint surfaces will give you an understanding of how those joints should actually move. Get, getting a handle on how every joint should move through movement is, is critical. It is just, it separates, honestly, it, it separates you to a higher level of understanding. Not necessarily being a better coach necessarily, but just a better, understand, a better person of understanding how movement should occur. And once you get that, once you can really intrinsically understand it, then that's going to change how you look at every single exercise that you I won't say prescribe, but you suggest to a person and it's going to give you a reason behind it even more so. So with, um, I know we're, we're getting short on time. So I have two things I really wanted to ask you before we're, we're done with this. And well, the first is I know, uh, when we, we in the strength and conditioning medium, eventually people are going to put load on things and put load on squats or, or things like that. And what's your take on, you know, that like, let's just say things that like a knee traveling in or things like that. I know when Pat Davidson wrote the article about squatting and like the Olympic lifters who are catching and their knees are traveling in naturally. Mm-hmm. I think he had mentioned not just not trying to coach knees out, letting the athlete feel the tripod and then kind of letting things happen naturally, more naturally was, was his. And I, and I like that. I like that idea of not trying to, to manufacture something, but as the weight goes up with movements, what, uh, what are your thoughts with things like squatting or things are getting heavier and then that Goldilocks zone and things like yeah, that? Yeah. I, I kind of, I'm in conflict with myself, to be honest, really, because uh, if, if the goal, it, I got to ask what the goal is, is the goal to just lift more weight or is the goal to improve your performance? So if it's to lift more weight, have at it. Do whatever comes naturally. And can we clean up your mechanics with other movements so you can enjoy your squatting existence? Then yeah, that's great. But if you're looking to just simply load, uh, or if you're if you're looking to improve your your sports ability, your athletic ability, or if you're just looking to feel better, I, I'm not going to necessarily uh, steer you in that direction, because a squat is just a squat. There's so many other things that the body is responsible for. 206 bones, 360 joints, 630 plus muscles, all moving through three-dimensional space. And, and all you're concerned with is, is how much you can lift on a squat. Well, again, it's your prerogative. I'll do my best to help you achieve your goal. But uh, if you're looking to improve your skiing, then we may have some other things planned for you than just a simple squat. One of the things that I really loved in learning from Gary's system and then seeing that like being carried out in this fitness setting with what you're doing is every exercise you get a insight into the, how the body produces opposition in the game. It's a miracle. Like it's amazing. And you get to see it in every exercise. And you I do. love that. You do. It really is. It's, it's sensational. And it gives you a totally new experience. Every time you give a movement to somebody, you get, they're giving you a gift of, of more experience. They're giving you knowledge of how they're figuring it out because no two people are going to move identically. So every time you give a movement to somebody, you're seeing something that you haven't seen before, most likely, if you're really paying attention. And then if you can encourage more efficiency with the movement, then, oh my gosh, how amazing could that be? So yeah, it's, it's something else. It, it really is. I, I love what I do. I love movement. I love studying. I could sit on a park bench in Disneyland all day long and just watch people move back and forth and just take note after note or geek out and, and, and never will I see the same story twice. Yeah. I've, when I go to the track now between my sets and runs, I just watch people run and I just, it's, it's awesome. I'm, I'm the same way. Um, very quick last question is, and we had talked about this, but uh, ratio of bilateral to uh, more functional lifts in a program. I'm sure it's different based on the person, but generally speaking from an athletic performance paradigm, do you have any thoughts on like how much bilateral, how much of, of transverse and frontal and unilateral and things like that in the program? Yeah, now granted, this is just a rule of thumb and all rules are meant to be broken. And so it depends upon the individual, but just in general throughout life, Man spends about only 10 to 20% of their time standing on both legs or, or, or moving in a bilateral fashion. 
the other 70, 80, whatever, 90% of the time is spent in a contralateral action, a unilateral, standing on one leg or moving one leg at a time. So I would have the program mimic that. I would have maybe 80% uh, or better being unilateral, contralateral, opposing or alternating actions, and only 10 or 20% of the time is going to be bilateral movement. Now, with that said, though, bilateral movement will encourage a lot of sagittal plane action. So if someone is deficient in sagittal motion, I'm going to give them a bilateral action. There's going to be a reason for it, though. It's not just going to be because, uh, you know, I'm running out of time. I've got a client and, I've, and uh, I haven't prepared, prepared prepared a program for them and I'm just going to throw in a whole bunch of of those lifts. No, that's that's not it. There's got to be a reason behind it. So with bilateral, yeah, 10-20% of your program is going to be made up of that. And if you're willing to do that, uh, I would love to hear back from you because I have a strong sinking suspicion that your performance is going to be so much better. I love it. Well, I know we could talk about this stuff. I mean, I, I have this huge page of notes, and I'm sure we could do a five-hour talk on it. But uh, I, I think our time is uh, our time is about up for today. So there's okay. always there's yeah. always tomorrow. We could always come back or do it again. Yeah, if I it'll give you a good excuse to come back uh, to the, the West Coast here because I'll 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 be probably missing California, so I'll need to come back. So uh, hopefully our paths can cross. And yeah, it's been awesome talking. My door's to you. always open. You're always welcome, Joel. <laughs> All right, thanks for tuning in for another show. Awesome to have you guys here. And man, I love expanding this, those layers of awareness and how our bodies move. They are just such incredible machines. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. Would definitely appreciate that. Also wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have the best of in sports tech from force plates and contact grids to timing systems to bar velocities, uh, measurement units. They really do have the best of in each sports tech category. Amazing customer service, amazing blog. So be sure to check them out and support them. We will see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.